This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by Physicians for Social Responsibility, the Sam L. Cohen Foundation, and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is the last show in our series on race and racism. We've been trying to explore the factors that keep racism so intact, so persistent, And while several of the recent shows have been about the systemic nature of racism, I wanted to end the series with a collection of stories about black-white personal relationships and some of the common pitfalls that white people fall into, often without even realizing they're doing it. In the course of doing this series, I've asked a lot of my white friends about race, and they all care about it. They're all appropriately distressed about what's been going on since the death of Michael Brown in August. Many have taken actions to express this distress or are eager to know what they can do to be helpful. But many are also hesitant to get involved for fear of exposing their ignorance and therefore looking racist or bad. Often in discussions about race, people will say what's at stake for white people is their self-image, their fear of looking bad, while what's at stake for black and brown people is their very lives. And the unspoken implication is that white people need to get over it and get on with undoing the systems that put black lives at stake. Frankly, part of me agrees with that. But another part, the clinician side of me, thinks we have to find a way to value both. Clearly, it is vitally important to address police brutality and all the systems of racism that it's a symptom of. But we also need to bring a more sophisticated understanding of the stakes for white people. From a psychological standpoint, the need to feel like a good person To know our own goodness in the world is a fundamental need. And so when we dismiss it, we fail to understand the forces that keep the status quo intact. We need to find a way to help white people risk exposing their ignorance about racism without being deeply shamed for it. A recent study showed that three quarters of white people in this country do not have a single friend of color. The study showed that most white people still grow up in largely segregated neighborhoods without black neighbors and school friends, and therefore grow up without the ease of connection across difference that early friendship brings. So white people come by their ignorance of race honestly. They grow up without the relationships that would help them see the world through different eyes. And what they do learn about racism makes them feel so bad. They now feel afraid and ashamed which makes forming new interracial relationships pretty complicated. Even as I say this, I feel anxious because I'm afraid you'll hear me as having sympathy for white racism. That's far from the case. Rather, I'm trying to understand it in the deepest way I can. Because so far, our attempts to dismantle racism in this country have not worked. I'm interested in creating a space where it's safe to talk about race in a way that acknowledges the pain that racism causes while bringing understanding to why white people behave and hold the attitudes that we do. Of course my white friends are hesitant about exposing their ignorance. But when we denounce this hesitation, we actually reinforce it. Because shame leads to avoidance. It seems to me that unless we make it safer for white people to make mistakes and learn from them, we're just going to keep perpetuating white avoidance and therefore perpetuating racism. And so this collection of stories is going to focus on classic white mistakes, the ones that we are afraid to make, which paralyze us and stop us from engaging in a racially. 
We've invited a group of courageous people, all white, to tell a story about a time when they discovered their own racial biases or realized that they were doing something hurtful to someone of color without being consciously aware of the impact of their actions. So we offer four stories about unfortunate ways that white people often interact with people of color. Because if we can talk openly about our mistakes, then they lose their power to paralyze us. The first story is about an all too common scenario in which white people have trouble believing that black people's experience of racism can really be that bad. And so we dismiss it. This is Alicia from Wyndham. I graduated from college in 2004 and the story takes place in 2006. And I was living in Portland, Oregon at the time. I had moved around a lot and I would work these odd jobs. And generally speaking, I'm a pretty anxious, responsible follower of the rules. And there was just this brief period of time in my life where I was just very neglectful of even, I would say, the law. And I was sitting at a bus stop and there was a kid sitting beside me and he was black and he was, I don't think he was any older than 16. And um, we made, you know, exchange some polite chit chat. How are you? Nice night, etc. And then a police officer drove by and he was like, oh no, I hate cops, I hate cops. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? You know, and I thought I was real tough and just because of the life I'd been, you know, living for, for about six months. And I was like, you don't need to be worried, you're not doing anything. And he was like, no, no, it doesn't matter. You don't, it doesn't matter. He's like, I, you have to carry an ID. They'll stop you if you're not carrying an ID. And he was really caught up on if he was carrying an ID and he was looking all around and, and I was like, what are you talking about? You don't have to carry an ID. It never even occurred to me that I had to carry around identification on my person. Um, and he's like, no, you don't understand. Just last week, um, you know, a police officer had stopped him on the street. He was walking to get bread um, at the corner store with his eight-year-old sister. And a police officer stopped him and asked him if his sister was his prostitute and just started questioning him. And, and, and as, as he's telling me this, you could hear the emotion. I mean, it was complete, genuine, how appalling it is to say something like that in front of an eight-year-old, period. And um, and as he was speaking, it was just sort of this, whoo, you know, I, I, I generally consider myself to be an empathetic person. And I sort of realized that I had no idea what it was like to be this kid. I had no idea. And I feel like empathy, what I was taught what empathy was, is to look at someone and say, how would I feel if I was in this situation? And I realized I, my understanding of his life or, or someone else's life is limited, and that limits my ability to empathize. And to stretch it, you have to have dialogues and learn from people that aren't just like you. The next story is about avoidance. 
It's about how attuned kids are to white adults' discomfort in interracial interactions and how when we don't have a way to talk about that discomfort, that silence can damage our relationships. My name is Henry, and I'm a 43-year-old white male from Falmouth, Maine. I grew up in Southern California with, in a mixed racial family. My grandmother, who was white, after she had my mother, remarried my grandfather, who was African-American, and they kind of raised me between five years old and 14 years old and you know, moving around the country. So basically, in, in short, what I had was I had an African-American grandpa who was kind of like my dad, and then I had a, a French grandmother who was my primary caregiver a lot as well. So, you know, I grew up without a dad. You know, my grandpa taught me how to throw. He taught me how to do everything that there was to do out there. And and this had been the during the 70s and 80s. And it was just, you know, it was kind of a, you know, not a real lot of outward, you know, racism towards us. It was just kind of odd. You know, people would always look at us, you know, a double take, you know, who's that? How are these people together? And nobody would really say too much. And but it was just always kind of odd. If we went to a restaurant, you know, they'd, the hostess would kind of look, you know, exactly who was sitting with whom and, you know, trying to always split us up into two groups. And we were pretty much used to it. And it wasn't a big deal. And I mean, there's probably a couple of funny stories, but I guess I'll talk about one that, you know, that resonates was I remember I had this really cool seventh grade social studies teacher. And, and I mean, she was really neat. And I remember her. She was a white woman, but she said, you know, she's always telling us about kind of things that happened during the civil rights movement. And I never really had a teacher that spoke about, you know, African-Americans in the in the real world and everything was, you know, growing up white and, you know, just white history, everything like that. And I mean, she was so, you know, really teaching us a lot about this stuff. And I kind of was always, you know, reticent to bring my grandfather to parent-teacher conference. You know, I'm like, oh, God, he's going to love this one. You know, she's so cool. She's going to have something neat to say. And sure enough, you know, I, the, the appointment comes and he and I walk in and she just freezes up. And, and there's just me, this little tiny white kid and this gigantic, huge black guy right next to me. And she just, you know, I mean, she starts knocking papers on the floor. And she's, you know, as she's trying to, again, trying to disguise her, her anxiety with the whole scene, she's just making it worse. And again, directly straight to me. Oh, Henry, who do we have here? I'm like, oh, it's my grandfather. And then just, you know, we'd always have this, we called it the quintessential pause. Like, oh, okay. Well, have a seat, Mr. And then I just kind of filled in with the last name. And again, it was, and it, and it was kind of at that point where I just had enough, you know, I mean, if, if Mrs. Dolan is weird about this, then I'm just done with it. So any kind of chance that I'm going to have to deal with my grandfather or my uncles in public, I'm just going to just, you know, take the easy road out of it. We used to make fun of a lot of people, you know, who would give us the double take or the pause or, you know, they're they're tripping over themselves trying to act like they don't notice that we're this, you know, black and white family in a restaurant. But, you know, we would make fun of that. But again, we would never talk about it. What ended up happening is I started resenting my grandfather and I started resenting my family. And, and it wasn't like, you know, an outward fury or anything like that. It was just, you know, when you're growing up, you don't want to have to deal with people looking at you twice or asking what's the deal or your friends are asking, you know, why you always hang out with him or who is the, who is he, who are they? And, you know, you just kind of get tired of it, at least, especially me being young. So what I started doing was I started making sure my grandfather was not, you know, being seen with me. And, and I'd say, you know, I started just telling my grandpa, can you drop me off, you know, down the street from soccer practice and, and I, you know, and we'd get notes for parent-teacher conference or back-to-school night, and I would just throw that stuff in the trash because my grandmother couldn't come because she didn't hardly speak English. So it was always my grandfather, and I just started throwing the stuff in the in the trash because I didn't want to have to deal with it. 
Our next story is about stereotypes and making assumptions that all black people fit the media's images of dysfunction and criminality. My name is Catherine, and I'm from Portland. I made a plan to go see a movie a while back uh, called Fruitvale Station. And I thought in going to see this movie, I was enjoying the sense of being so almost righteous about my thoughtfulness about race. And I was going with a friend of mine who's Haitian-American, and she was the right person to go see it with, and we're going to go to the movie theater and support this film about a young man who was shot on New Year's Eve by a police officer. And as a mother of a young African-American adopted child who's nine, I felt really important to me to get out there in front and see this film and to confront what's happening to young men of color today. So he has a birthday party to go to at one part in the movie. It's New Year's Eve. It's his mother's birthday. And he's going to show up at his mom's house for his birthday party. And as he gets to the house and he opens the door, right before the door opens, what I thought I was going to see was going to be every possible stereotype I had of young black men and their families. And here there is going to be drugs on the table and there are going to be guns and they're going to be like, his sister is probably going to be pregnant. I mean, you name it. What I expected were layers and layers of dysfunction and people impoverished and struggling and rude. And instead, what I saw was a house like the one I grew up in and mom and a dad and married people and joy and a turkey cooking and people cutting vegetables and sweet banter and crosstalk and a deep connection with their son who was going to go out and celebrate New Year's Eve. I think for me, what happened was that I was walking into the movie theater with a sense of righteousness that I, as the white woman, was going in and I can take it. I'm going to spend my two hours watching this movie and I'm going to talk about it and look at me. And this great moment happens where when he opens the door and I didn't see what I expected, I felt no better than anyone else out there. I thought, you're carrying all these things that other people are afraid of and you have them too and you're not noticing them. And whereas I take inventory more and more now, each, each time that things come up to the surface and I have a chance to talk about them, like a story like I'm doing now or talking to a friend after seeing the movie and several of us were like, have you seen it? Have you seen it? And, and for me, it became about, oh, yeah, I saw it and it, I was so destroyed and devastated and the thought that my son would be seen this way. And I think it probably took a little while for me to realize, oh, the thought that I would see my own son this way. And I have an impetus, which is more so than the average bear, to really check in because how am I holding those thoughts over my own son? And if I'm not filtering them out, does he have any safe place to go? And, you know, I don't know that he does. Our last story is about judging, about assuming that the white way of doing something is the right way, the only way, and how sometimes it takes being in the minority as a white person to begin to see that you even hold that bias. My name is Betsy Parsons, and I live in South Portland. I 
identify as a white person. My story is about an experience that I had a long time ago, really, about 20 years ago. It took place in a graduate school class. It's a very small group of about 18. And um, as I recall, three of us were white. Um, All the rest were people of color from various backgrounds. So one day we were all assigned to work in a smaller group together. And so I was in this group in which I was the only person who was not a person of color. And we were given an, uh, an assignment that wasn't terribly clear and a really short amount of time in which to prepare something for the class. So when we were sent off to do our thing, um, what happened in my group was kind of this burst of cacophony, really, just all these random voices, uh, loud and multi-layered, and I immediately couldn't make sense of what was happening and really kind of panicked. I mean, I felt under pressure myself to, to know what was going on and to, you know, to have some input and to be prepared when our time came to have to present to the rest of the class and to the professor. And I just was very stressed by this environment. So my experience of that was just to try to try to shut down the multiple voices and ask for one person to speak at a time and for everybody to listen to to that one person. At one point, I think I even got so upset that I I, I seem to remember uh, letting them know that they were giving me a headache. (laughs) So, um, of course, at the time, this didn't seem funny to me at all. But what happened was that, you know, the time came for us to present and members of my group gave to the class, you know, something that was perfectly acceptable. And the minute we were free, the, the members of my group just turned on me and began to yell at me. There were plenty of obscenities, which I don't want to repeat, but it, under no circumstances was I to miss the fact that I had been behaving in a really racist way and that my behavior had been deeply offensive and really obnoxious. And I was so stunned and taken aback. Part of me wanted to uh, respond defensively and to be angry, and um, fortunately I didn't have the sense not to do that, but those were the feelings that I had. Um, So I, I went and found another person in the class who was a close friend And I poured out my tale of woe at how abused I had just been. And my dear friend listened, and at one point she very quietly said, so Betsy, did you not understand that most of those people probably come from a polychronic culture? And I actually had not heard that word before. So, uh, but I understood from its roots for it to mean many voices at the same time. What I didn't understand, of course, is that this was a communication style that was perfectly comfortable for the other people in the room, and that I might have been the only person who was stressed by it. And of course, I had no idea. I just had no idea that that what they were doing was comfortable and comforting and a fully appropriate method of getting the problem solved that we had to deal with in our group.
So I went home and thought about it. And, I mean, my lens just entirely shifted when I began to imagine what it was like to come up in school environments where other, other ways of communicating in classrooms were perfectly acceptable, and then to be told by someone else that her way was not only a superior way, but in fact the only way. Once, once I lived into that enough, I actually became first really embarrassed about my behavior and um, wished I could replay the scene and um, didn't know how I was going to repair the relationship with these women. I was going to have to go through several more class sessions with them. And so I, I thought through the various personalities in the group, and I, and I, I chose uh, a woman who I thought just might possibly be able to hear my embarrassment and my apology, and I called her. So I stumbled. My, I mean, she was very cold when she heard my voice, and I stumbled my way through this apology in which I, I just said, you know, I had no idea. I had no idea that, uh, that I was trying to impose my own way of doing something on, on the group and that, um, that, in fact, that that could be experienced as racist. I was re I'm really horrified by that. I'm really embarrassed that I did that. I wish that I had been more aware, and um, I, I hope that you'll forgive me. And the, the most interesting thing happened. There was just this silence, and I thought, oh, boy, here it comes again. I'm just, you know, <laughs> it's going to be an instant replay of the other day. And instead, what this lovely African-American woman did was to uh, begin to tell a story. And the story didn't have anything to do that I could see with the experience that we had just had. In fact, I don't even remember the outline of the story all these years later. And... At the end, I realized that the point of the story was that someone had been separated or exiled from a circle, and that the person in the story had found a way to reconcile and, and was being welcomed back into the circle. And that's really all that mattered to me, was that whatever, whatever that story was ultimately about, it was about inclusion. And that was my, to me, somewhat coded um, indication that I that I would be allowed to be back in that room and that I would be treated as a human being, um, is despite the fact that I had not taken others into account um, very well myself. And in fact, that's what happened. It was clear to me the next time I walked into that class that um, all the other women in that group had been given the word that I had apologized and that I had reflected and that I should be treated um, as a person who had learned something. And so, you know, we, you know, we made it to the end of the semester together. <laughs> and I've thought of it many times over the years when I've been tempted to come to too quick a judgment about a situation instead of asking myself, what are some other ways that this could get done? Um, also, what does it feel like to be the other people in the room? 
What aspects of experience are they bringing that I have no idea about? It isn't that I'd never asked those questions before, but I, it took me to a new level of wondering about those things. And I guess the other thing it did, frankly, was to make abundantly clear to me that this, that this would be a lifelong journey for me, that I would never get done understanding about what I didn't know about race and racism in this, in this country and in myself. Thanks to each of our guests today for being willing to reveal themselves so generously. As a white person, I know I've hurt people by doing all these things, dismissing, avoiding, stereotyping, and judging people who are different from me. Because of the racist conditioning of our society, it can take a conscious effort to not do those things. As a result of doing this series over the past 10 weeks, I've been thinking a lot about race and noticing my own patterns of relating and the assumptions that I make. And one thing has really surprised me. Every single one of our white guests has said that working against racism has forced them to experience discomfort and pain. But the payoff has been huge, that all the relationships in their lives have benefited. But there was a part of me that wondered if that was just salesmanship to encourage more white people to get involved. But then something happened to me that made me rethink that skepticism. And it showed me that the work that we do to understand racism can have benefits in relationships across many other kinds of differences as well. I was talking to a Jewish friend two weeks before Christmas, just as a Christmas carol came on over the radio. She turned it off and said she just couldn't bear to hear another carol. She was done. She then went on to tell me a story about how difficult it was to raise two Jewish boys in Kennebunk, Maine, where they were each the only Jewish kid in their class. She said her kids would feel so surrounded by Christmas and so left out that she started taking them out of school for the last part of December so that they could go to the museums in Boston instead. So far I was with her. I could imagine how hard it would be for a child to keep hearing about Santa Claus. But then she said that when she would call their teacher to explain that she was taking them out of school, she could hear in the teacher's voice how glad they were that her sons would be gone. When I heard that, my reflex was to be skeptical, to say, are you sure she really meant that? But then I remembered the interview we had just aired last week with Debbie Irving, in which she talks about how she used to dismiss the stories about racist experiences that her black friends would tell her. So I kept my mouth shut and I just listened. And something new happened. My friend explained that yes, the teacher was relieved not to have the one Jewish kid in her classroom for the week before Christmas because now the whole class could celebrate Christmas together and really enjoy it and not have to keep worrying about including the Jewish boy. Then she went on to explain that it was so painful for her as a mother to know that her child's own teacher was glad when he didn't come to school 
and that day after day she sent her child to be taught and looked after by that very same teacher. And as she talked, my eyes started to fill with tears as I imagined what that might be like to feel my own child unwanted by his teacher. And for a moment, I felt so connected with her, so filled with emotion for her and her son, and moved by the pain of her experience. And as I left that conversation, I began to trust what my guests in the series had been saying. When we don't dismiss the experiences of people that are different from ours, we end up learning something new that is painful, but helps us feel so much more connected. So maybe a first step for white people in working against racism and relating in healthier ways is to start believing what people of color are telling us, that it really is that bad, and to simply listen without the reflexive skepticism that society conditions in us. If you like this show and want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio, and you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com, where you can listen to all of our past shows, including the previous ones in this series with Debbie Irving, Peggy McIntosh, Paul Marcus, Shelley Touchluck, and Natasha Wilson. While you're there, please subscribe to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Shay Stewart-Boulet and Jim Russell for being our editorial advisors. Coming up next, Speak Freely.